Hello, everyone, and welcome back to an all-new episode of The Financial Confessions. It's me, your host, Chelsea Fagan, founder and CEO of The Financial Diet and woman who loves to talk about money. And when we talk about money on this channel, oftentimes we're talking about it through the prism of our lifestyle choices, our consumer choices, the things we buy, the things we put on our bodies, our faces, in our homes, in our stomachs. Money at the end of the day is not just a bunch of numbers on a screen or a piece of paper, although in some ways it can be easier and maybe even more healthy to think of it that way. It's also in many ways a living, breathing thing that both informs and controls the choices we make. And a lot of the messaging around us, aside from just sort of generally being built to separate us from our money, is also often teaching us extremely bad and untrue narratives about the way we live and the things we buy. And one of those most corrupted narratives is a subject that we've talked about several times on the channel, but I think is always worth revisiting, especially in a consumer landscape that is getting increasingly unethical and unsustainable. And that is fashion, and in many ways, specifically fast fashion. The way that we shop for clothes, how many clothes we own, how long we own our clothes for, all of these things have radically changed over the past decades and the past hundred or so years. Um, but especially in the past decade or so, we have seen a kind of hyper-normalization of this fast fashion landscape that has expanded well beyond anything that someone living even probably 50 years ago could have ever predicted. We've done videos, for example, on the way that Shein is in many ways representative of the absolute absolute worst of the industry, but we've also done videos that talk about how it's not just a Shein localized problem. There are many, many brands, both ones that we recognize as fast fashion and also ones that we may not guess would be who are part of this problem. And in many ways, social media, as we've discussed, drives this constant need to consume more, to show off, to never be caught wearing the same thing twice, which again is a luxury that only probably literal royalty would have ever had in the past and maybe not even them. For those who don't know, we have a book club here at The Financial Diet. It's one of the perks of being a member of our society at TFD, which you can join at the join button or on our Patreon, both of which will be linked. And every month we meet to discuss a book club pick that our members themselves select. And last month it was the book written by my guest today. It's called Consumed, and it is all about the issues that I've discussed and much more, and in many ways, what should come next. My guest today is an author, an editor, a stylist and a consultant living in London. Could not be more chic. Her name is Aja Barber, and I'm so glad to have her with me here today. Hi, Aja. Hi, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that wonderful intro. Thank you. I always like it's, it, I always feel like I'm jumping off a ski slope when I do my intros because, you know, I start them and I know what I want to say generally, but especially a topic like fast fashion and the way we consume today is such a broad and complicated topic that it can feel almost impossible to summarize it. And thanks to advisor.com for supporting TFC. Advisor.com offers expert financial planning and investing for a flat annual fee. Schedule a free consultation call with advisor.com today at advisor.com and never make another financial decision alone. Um, and interestingly, before we started speaking, when I was running by you, the words that I was going to use to describe your work, I had said, um, sustainable fashion expert. And you corrected me that you really use the word ethical over sustainable and that that in and of itself is a good example of the problem. Could you kind of explain that for our audience? Yeah, um, that's a pretty common, you know, it's it's one of those things, right, where people um, always use sustainable fashion, but I particularly have stopped using it 
only because the word has been completely co-opted by some of fashion's worst offenders. Um, and I use ethical fashion now when I talk about what it is that I talk about and do, because sustainable fashion is a bit like the wild, wild west. Like there's no actual regulation behind sustainability in any way. But with ethical fashion, we're referring to people and the treatment of people and, you know, how you sort of think about the whole ecosystem when you're producing garments. And you can lie about paying people, but it will catch up with you. Where with sustainable fashion, the definition is so loosey-goosey that somebody can really call anything sustainable fashion and get away with it. And that's a lot of what we're seeing. And that's part of the reason why we're all so confused in this conversation. Well, and also, as I alluded to in my intro, you know, I think a lot of people are aware of some of the bigger and more egregious offenders in terms of your Sheehan's, your Fashion Nova's, things like that. Um, but a lot of the more high-end brands are engaging in a lot of these same practices um, and have a lot of these same ethical problems. So one of the questions that we get most frequently, and I will be diving into our book club member uh, questions, but one of the more general questions that we get is how do we even know what we're looking for when it comes to buying ethical fashion? One of the um, biggest questions I always get. So yeah, um, I tell people just look for proof that people are being paid. Now, obviously, folks can lie about that, but it doesn't serve big corporations to lie about that and get caught with their pants down metaphorically. So look for um, flowery language surrounding payment. You know, if, if a brand cannot tell you every member of our supply chain is paid a living wage, that's because they can't tell you that for a reason. So if you are shopping with a small brand, for instance, today I'm wearing loud bodies. I love loud bodies. They can tell you exactly what everyone is paid. They can tell you that all of their garments are made in-house by a small workshop that employs a lot of women. They can tell you that everyone is making above minimum wage, above living wage. So the brands that are doing it right are so excited to tell you about the things that they're doing right. And if the language is way too flowery and way too, uh, what's the word? going around in a circle, but never actually saying the thing, then you should interrogate that. And I think we have sort of gotten to a place in our society where we don't interrogate things, particularly when it has to do with corporations. But um, nothing like sending an email and just saying, hey, I was on your website and I wanted to double check that every person that makes your clothing is paid a living wage. And how do you know that as a brand? And Often you'll see it on corporate responsibility pages. We are working to end modern day slavery. We are working to make sure that everyone's getting paid a living wage. And the same brands that are saying this have been saying it for 20, 30 years now. So what's the holdup? Well, you know, so you, you've described, I think, a really interesting metric and a good one for looking at the ethics of things like labor uh, compensation and, and labor practices. Do you find in your work that the the labor standards generally dovetail with ecological standards or are they often totally separate considerations and you find one company that checks all of one box and not the other? Um, I actually think they go hand in hand. There's a book that came out by Roland Gayer called The Business of Less, The Role of Companies and Households on a Planet in Peril. 
And one of the points that the book makes is that paying fair wages within a supply chain is intrinsically linked to fighting the climate crisis. Mm. So, you know, one of the things that I talk about a lot, a lot, a lot on my platform is overproduction. One of the ways you curb overproduction is by paying fair wages to everyone. Brands can only overproduce mostly because they're exploiting people. That's the factor, right? So if you are paying everyone living wages, you are slowing down your supply chain effectively. You are creating less sweatshops. You are um, making more opportunities for people to actually have a better quality of life, but you're not going to be able to make as much product. And overproduction is, you know, an environmental problem. But additionally, within the book that I just mentioned, they talk about how when you pay X amount of workers living wages in certain countries, that's the equivalent of taking X amount of CO2 out of the atmosphere. So ultimately, whether we're talking about waste, whether we're talking about pollution, whether we're talking about opportunities for women and girls, and one of the things you have to realize is that 80% of the supply chain is women and girls. And when it comes to climate crisis, we are going to be the ones who are most negatively impacted. It's a threat multiplier. So when you pay fair wages, it has a knock-on effect with the other problems that exist within the fashion industry pertaining to the environment. So that's why I say look for the fair wages, because ultimately that's a good thing. And I think that's the first thing we need to take care of. There's nothing sustainable about a company that pays, you know, that will tell you that like, one t-shirt was made out of organic cotton, but everybody who made the t-shirt is exploited. What are we sustaining? <laughs> well said. I mean, I think you're hitting on something that is such a, an endemic problem to our uh, our psychology as a society in you know wealthy Western countries that there is a an expectation there's an entitlement i think to feeling that one should be able to have an enormous amount of abundance at a bottom barrel price and to not think about what that means now obviously you want to be careful on this issue because there are a lot of people for whom spending more money on a given item is not realistic. It's not possible. It's not within their budget. But I think often the discussion around accessibility in terms of not everyone can afford to buy a more um, sustainably produced or ethically produced garment or food item or whatever the case may be can be used to obscure the fact that many people who could buy less and buy better choose not to. Um, exactly. And I do, you know, I think for a lot of people, the move away from something like fast fashion has to, at its core, be a move away from the perception of that endless cheap abundance. And I'm interested as someone who's made this their work, did you always have that perception or was it something that you sort of had to unplug yourself from? Absolutely not. Honestly, <laughs> all of us who are born into privileged countries in this on this planet will be unpacking consumerism for the rest of our lives because consumerism is so entrenched in our culture. And I would never, ever, ever sit up here and go, well, now I dress from these brands, so that makes me better than everyone else, because that was not always the case. But in order to have this conversation, I think it 
really takes being honest with yourself. And when I look back upon how I participated in the system formerly, I feel, you know, that there was a lot of times where I wasn't being honest with myself and neither were a lot of my peers. The reality is I grew up lower middle class in a very affluent area. I was surrounded by snobs. And so I did not feel good about myself. I didn't feel good about the fact that the majority of my clothing were hand-me-downs from my older sister, which meant that they were really dated because we were children of the 80s and 90s. I didn't feel good about the fact that I didn't grow up wearing name brand stuff and, you know, financial stuff in my family was always stressful. There was never a time period where I said, oh yeah, yeah, we're, we're great with money. That just wasn't the case. And I had this inherent sense of lack. I grew up in a predominantly white area as well. So let's factor in being in spaces where you are the only Black person. And all of these experiences primed me as the perfect fast fashion consumer. By the time I was in my 20s, I was off to the races. I was like, yes, I can buy my way into social circles with clothing that's going to fall apart. And a lot of times I did tell myself, well, you know, this is all I can afford. And while there was a lot of times where my employment was super wobbly within my 20s and early 30s, um, the reality was I was overbuying and overconsuming a lot. And I was doing that to plug various holes in my life where I didn't feel good, right? Like um, being in my 20s and seeing very wealthy peers get on the property ladder because of their parents, knowing that my parents could never do that didn't make me feel good. Okay, I guess I'll go and buy a cheap dress. Um, living in my parents' basement for the umpteenth time. Well, at least I can buy cheap clothing, you know? So I look back and I realize exactly what I was doing. And there were times when I would look at an ethical, slow fashion brand and go, well, that's nice, but who has the money for that? Well, it turns out I did if I didn't buy five dresses from H&M that summer. You know what I mean? So when I look back at a lot of the discretionary spending that I was doing, and frankly, spending money I didn't have because I wasn't saving much, which is how this really becomes a financial conversation. And I look at all the different areas of peer pressure that was surrounding me in my 20s, I can see very clearly why I wasn't spending in a certain way. I, why I wasn't being very honest with myself about the ways in which I was spending. But if I could go back in time and unpack that in real time, like if somebody from 2023 time traveled back to like 2010 and was like, hey girl, you don't need that crap. Don't buy it. Um, I would be really grateful. Wouldn't we all like to have the wisdom we have today? <laughs> but that's why I talk about it because I want other people to really start to look at these systems because they are I would say a lot of these systems in many ways are predatory predatory, and um, social media has just been the greatest tool for the fast fashion industry. Man, I got emotional when you were talking because that your what you described as your experience. Like I also grew up lower middle class and in my preteen years moved to a very affluent area. And it was to your point, like, almost nothing will put you on the hamster wheel of consumption more than a feeling of inadequacy and, you know, looking around and seeing other people who have things that, you know, through no fault of your own, you can't access and seeing the sort of 
ways that it excludes you or the judgment that, you know, it, it renders on you. And I think even if people don't necessarily have that specific experience, although I think it is common and can be powerful for people, usually at some point in their life, clothing represents a means of access and a means of perception that otherwise are unavailable to them. Um, and fast fashion can be sort of a cheat code or a shortcut to that. You know, I'm thinking, for example, yes. there's been, I don't know if I'm sure you've seen, but like on TikTok recently, there's been an obsession with like old money fashion and old money style, which like, I'm sure you agree, like, Come on, if you're looking on a TikTok on how to dress, like you will never even remotely approach that sort of aesthetic. But more importantly, it is very interesting how even between different sort of flavors of wealth, fast fashion is being used as a way to sort of make a very, um, you know, a sort of shorthand imitation of it. And I wonder, you know, for a lot of people who might be, let's say, like, let's say you're someone who just happens to be aesthetically attracted to the like coastal grandmother waspy style, country club style, Ivy League style, what have you, which no judgment. Uh, but how do people kind of differentiate between this is a style that I'm very interested in and, and curating, you know, personal style is, a, is an important form of self-expression versus I am sort of poisoning myself to some extent with the constant aspiration towards a lifestyle or aesthetic that isn't mine. Yeah. So that requires finding your personal style. And I think in order to find your personal style, truly, you got to step off the hamster wheel of fast fashion because with fast fashion, trends are being thrown at you. You're not making a lot of these choices for yourself or even making the choice to opt out. You're going into a store and those colors have been picked for you by a team of people who have studied color trends, yada, yada, yada. I don't want to get all devil wears Prada, but like that monologue definitely applies. You know, we don't have as much freedom in the fast fashion system as we believe we do. And um, ultimately finding your personal style will free you. But also when you start to really look at some of these systems critically, you start to notice that like trends are just things that you already own sometimes being repackaged. Like I laughed at Coastal Grandmother and I actually did do a video about it, which I think I deleted because I deleted TikTok recently because I don't like TikTok talk it's just not for me but um I did a video where I was laughing about coastal grandmother because I dress in a way that I refer to as art teacher chic like today I am definitely a little bit more um kindergarten teacher in my tiger print dress but um usually you can find me in linen I am one linen wearing middle-aged woman and I love it but like <laughs> a lot of that is coastal grandma like and I didn't need to buy anything new in order to participate in the coastal grandma trend. Like, I think one thing that people can do if they are interested in participating in whatever trend is going around on TikTok is open up your closet and take everything out that really applies to that trend and see what you can do without going into a store, because you might be surprised. Like, one of the things I noticed in my 20s is every five years, sometimes less, you know, the fashion industry tries to sell you an oversized denim shirt, which looks exactly like the oversized denim shirt you bought five years ago, or the one that I bought in 2008 
thrifted. That was from 2001. That's the oldest thing in my wardrobe. It always looks the same. It never changes. And so once you start to sort of step off of that hamster wheel of need and want and consuming and consuming, you really start to notice these things and that pressure to go out and buy the new denim shirt disappears because it's pretty identical to the old denim shirt. And so in order to really, really, really get to a place where these systems aren't getting you, you have to slow down mentally and you have to really change your relationship to the ways in which you interact with these systems. So for a lot of people, that's going to look like unsubscribing from all the email lists. That's going to look like unfollowing the brands on social media. So you aren't being targeted through social media ads. And when you do that, it's going to feel weird and maybe a little bit sad because to go back to our society, consumerism is like the word of the day. And part of us feels like in order to participate in society, sometimes you have to participate in consumerism in a certain way, but that's not true. And so the minute you start to really pick that apart, you really start to understand it more and more. And then you start to feel a lot of clarity surrounding these systems. And then you start to feel more empowered. But the first step is to really change your own interactions. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because I I totally hear you on having deleted TikTok. I only use it as of a few months ago and I've been rather enjoying it. And I my rule on most social media is I only follow women, uh, like, unless I know them, uh, you know, over, over 50 essentially. Um, and I think (laughs) that, I mean, let me tell you mental health life hack. I talk about it all the time on here because it really was a game changer for me, but also part of what you notice when you follow older women pretty much exclusively is you mentioned that the oldest item that you have is about 22 years old, um, that you wear. And I think one thing that has really kind of evaporated from our consciousness is the idea of having clothes for a really long time. And the women that I follow on TikTok and Instagram, they're constantly pulling out pieces from literally 50 years ago. Um, And I think that that has become something that we just don't even expect out of our garments anymore. Like that's not even a possibility. and just from a more practical standpoint, when it comes to having clothes over a very long period of time and wearing them, both from a styling perspective and also a maintenance perspective, um, what are some strategies that you've adopted to help keep your clothes for, for much longer and enjoy them? Well, for starters, a lot of us don't know how to take care of our clothing. Um, everything is machine wash. And frankly, to be honest, machines are great but like you know the tumble dryer it tears up your clothing now I I get it we're busy whatever but if there is a chance that you can get a drying rack it's going to be a game changer um I live in the UK tumble dryers are not super abundant here it's starting to become more of a thing but we have a washer dryer and I call the dryer element the wrinkler because it doesn't (laughs) really do much except for like squished your clothing up it's fine for like towels and sheets and stuff but I wouldn't tumble dry anything delicate and I don't think that we should be tumble drying a lot of our clothing so one of the elements of keeping your clothing for a long time is care caring like taking the time to do a simple repair 
taking the time to get your clothing tailored. That is something that is a game changer. And we just don't do enough of that in our society. We buy it off the rack and anything that's made on the rack is not made for your specific body. It just isn't. It's made to fit a dress form and then they size up or size down from there. And the dress form might be, you know, a size eight or a size four or whatever, but that's not made specifically for your body. So if you buy something and you think, yeah, it's good, but like this thing about it kind of bothers me, try taking it to a tailor because that is going to like, you are going to level up so hard and be like, why didn't I do this sooner? But there are other things I do as well. If I get, you know, a new pair of shoes and they have a soft sole, which a lot of like, it's, you know, more expensive shoes do, I immediately take them to the cobbler and have them put on a hard sole. Um, I waterproof my shoes almost immediately when I get them because I live in London, it rains. Um, so there are all these little things that we can do to really care for our product, but because of the nature of the fast fashion machine, we've gotten away from caring for our products. And, and what you talked about, about clothing not lasting that is sometimes by design. Um, we talk about planned obsolescence in electronics, right? Apple got in a lot of trouble and they've been sued because certain products will be on a timer before they fall apart or they don't work with the rest of like the stuff that you have, which means you have to like buy more stuff. Clothing, same thing in the fast fashion industry. A lot of things are not being built to last and they're that's happening because they want you to continue to buy. They want you to be in a buying cycle. A lot, a lot of people talk about um, the Vimes boot theory, um, but they use it in the wrong way, particularly in defending fast fashion. So the Vimes boot theory comes from a Terry Pratchett book. And Samuel Vimes is a man who um, needs these boots for work. And he can only afford the boots that cost $20, the $100 pair of boots is far more expensive, but it will last him for years where the $20 pair of boots last him for months and he can't get the $100 pair. So he's stuck in this buying loop. Now people do use that when they're justifying Shein hauls and it doesn't work because Vimes would not have shopped at Shein if he had the $100. Right. And I'd like to take a quick pause to thank today's sponsor, Advisor.com. The TFD community loves Advisor.com, so I'm incredibly thrilled to be partnering with them this year. As you know, one of my life's passions is making financial education accessible for everyone. It shouldn't matter where you come from, what level of education you have, or what your current financial circumstances are. I'd argue that the more precarious your current situation is, the more important it is to educate yourself financially. And that includes having a professional guide you along the way to help you make the best decisions and navigate our financial systems with confidence. Getting to work with a living, breathing financial advisor has historically been out of reach for those with less than 250K in the bank, despite the fact that many of life's meaningful financial moments happen way before hitting that financial milestone. Robo-advisors and apps have tried to fill that gap, and while they can be helpful depending on your situation, there really is no replacement for one-on-one -on -one guidance and connections. Advisor.com provides their clients with a top-notch advising team for a fixed, flat annual fee. If you have money resolutions for 2023 and are feeling motivated to make positive changes, think of them as your financial accountability partner. Their team of advisors work for you, not commissions, and will help you to achieve 
achieve your smart financial goals through planning, investing, tax strategizing, and more. As I mentioned earlier, the TFD community loves and trusts advisor.com. Schedule a free consultation with advisor.com today at advisor.com and never make another financial decision alone. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's also something that a lot of people just don't want to reckon with is there are times when our hand is forced financially, but there are also times when we are forcing our own hand. Yes. Yes. And I had to be honest with myself about when I was younger and how I was buying from a place of inadequacy and it wasn't bringing me joy. I mean, I even think back, like when I was 18, (laughs) I wanted a Birkin bag and I had read about it in like Glamour magazine. This was before Sex and the City. I'm really dating myself, but I decided I really wanted a Birkin bag. And today I think Birkin bags are ugly. I do. I wanted it because I wanted what it said about me, that I was this person who knew about the thing far before it was on a TV show who got on the wait list. So I actually put myself on a wait list for one. I thought by the time I'm out of school, I'll be working in a high paying job. <laughs> Jokes on me, recession. And then I'll have the money for this expensive bag. And when I was uh, at that age, they were $5,000, which honestly, that is a ridiculous amount of money to save for a bag. But I was determined and it was because I was going into the workforce and I knew that I was going to be in very white spaces and I wanted a bag that said, don't mess with me or whatever. But today when I look at them, they're really not my style or taste. And so when we can sort of look at past purchases and needs and wants and desires and ask ourselves, what is behind that? You know, a lot of times I didn't want to repeat an outfit or wear the same outfit twice, came from being teased about my clothing when I was in elementary school or having some little snot-nosed kids say to me like, oh, do you wear the same pair of jeans because your family is poor? You know, stuff like that really gets in here. And I think we don't really realize how much it negatively impacts us when we're an adult with credit cards and stuff. Ugh. Tell me about it. Um, So as promised, uh, Consumed was our book club pick of last month. Uh, So we have a lot of questions from our book club members um, beyond the awesome conversation that they had. Okay. What is the best way to handle plus size manufacturing as a math problem, i.e. brands often charge more for plus size clothes because they, quote, cost more to make? How could they change this? Um, I think that that is a little bit unethical, to be honest, for brands to do that. Not every brand does that. Some brands do. I don't agree with it. The truth of the matter is, do you charge less money for a smaller person's clothing? No, you factor in the price of the plus size garment in your entire line. That's what you do. You don't charge people more money for being plus size. I have a line with my friend, Laura, and I'm not saying this to toot my own horn, but we do not charge for plus sizes because overall, when we were factoring in what we're going to charge, the cost that we are charging for everyone is the same across the board. You know, it's kind of like when people are talking about how um, they don't want to support universal health care, whatever. They're like, you mean you, you, you want to pay for someone else's health care bill? And I'm like, yeah, I do. If it means that we're going to have a better society, 
I'm okay with that. I don't have any kids. I pay a lot of American taxes. I, and I want my taxes to go to school and people having a good livelihood. And I think we need to start looking at societal issues as, oh, you know, instead of that's a, that person's problem, like, why aren't we taking better care of ourselves? So no, I would not buy from a brand that charged more for plus sizes. I am plus size and uh, in my own line, I don't do that. So unfortunately, I think brands need to figure out a different way of doing business. If it means you're upping the price a little bit across the board, then it's worth it to be inclusive. So that's my answer to that. Not to bash anyone that has to do that, but I, I don't agree with it. Well, if there's one thing that everyone is encouraged to do on this show, it's toot their own horn. So what's the name of your line? Um, I do a line with my friend, Laura Jean, and it's the Aja Capsule. We have a couple of, I've been doing it since 2019, but pandemic and supply chain means that we are just introducing like three pieces at a time. So we have a few dresses and we have some knitwear and everything is made by people that are paid well above living wage, which means that like nobody's getting rich here, but that's okay. We're creating nice clothing that we like and paying people fairly. Obsessed. That will be linked. Um, okay. <clears throat> I've seen many MLM structured companies pop up in the past decade that tout fair wages and ethical production practices. However, they still run on the premise of throwing parties to get your friends to buy more as a way to help those who make the clothes. Sometimes they can feel pretty white saviorish and they still push consumption. Are these businesses at least a step in the right direction or are they, or are they doing more harm than good? Oh, um, yeah, I'm in the no harm than more harm than good category there. Um, I do talk about this a little bit and consume. I, I think that we've all been in that position where you get invited to a party and then before you know it, you're buying a little pouch that, you know, you don't really need because you want to support someone's business. It's, that is... Yeah, I just think it's it's a little bit of extortion in my opinion. And I'm fine with like throwing a little money here, there, everywhere, but I generally try and avoid those those parties because I do think it's it's doing more harm. And you see this harm translate um into the supply chain. Every time I go into a charity shop in my local town where I'm from. I see a whole bunch of LuLaRoe now, a whole bunch, a lot. It's impossible to go in and not see LuLaRoe and then of course Shein. And I know exactly what's happening with the LuLaRoe stuff. People are getting into the business, realizing that maybe it's not great. And then they're dumping all that on charity shops or people are buying from their friends and doing it to be nice and then putting it straight into the charity shop bag. But like, this stuff is negatively aiding in the problems that we talk about and consumed. Mm. Uh, we got a lot of questions about basically how to buy sustainable long-term stuff when your uh, body is likely to change quite a bit over the next few years, like notably, for example, people who might be having kids, et cetera. Yeah, um, I get this question a lot and I'm definitely in that category. I don't have kids, but I have uterine fibroids and it's, it's not great around the waist. I don't think I'll ever wear anything with the hard waistline again. And the thing that, I mean, particularly my style, 
really works in this way because I talked about how I dress like an art teacher, which means that I do tend to wear a lot of like floaty shapes and whatnot. Um, I'm all for a relaxed jean. I have some skinny leg jeans. They're fine, but I have found my perfect denim and I just stick to that. And I know that it's going to work. I like a Levi's 501. I don't buy them new because Levi's as a company has a lot to do as far as ethics and sustainability goes. But guess what? They overproduce, which means that you can always go on eBay and find your size in Levi's. Always, always, always. You don't have to buy it new. Somebody else is selling it. So I, I hate to go back to finding your personal style again, but when you realize that your body is fluctuating and whatnot, I think your style should adapt to that. And that's one of the things that um, my Laura jean collection is about. Um, a few of the dresses are dresses where they've sort of got two sizes built into it because I definitely went through that when I was in my 20s. Everything was quite fitted. And then if I changed size, it was pretty much like, well, time to give that away or resell it or whatever. And I just got very, very tired of that. So I kind of started to really adapt my style for my body, which means, like I said, I never wear anything if it's not an elastic waistband these days. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I also think we as a society are becoming more relaxed in our style as well. Um, and this was happening before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic really locked it in. So you had like the rise of athleisure, right? And then we went into a pandemic where we were in lockdown. So I don't see a lot of style going back to um, the rigidness that was there post pre-COVID. And um, I think you got to cut yourself a little bit of slack, but also when you're buying something, think about like, okay, but is this going to fit if I, if I gain 20 pounds? And if it isn't, ask yourself, is this something I want to invest this amount of money in? I think that's the, that's the reality. I mean, I love an empire waste for a lot of reasons. And part of that is the days when I'm feeling very bloated, no problem, no sweat. I can still wear the garment. Plus it has that Jane Austen chic. <laughs> it does. It does. Um, a lot of people asking if it's unethical to uh, like upcycle clothes from thrift shops. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is like, this is like the conversation that I feel like we're going to be having for the next 10 years. So, okay. If it's a plus size piece and it's trendy and you know that somebody will walk into that thrift store and think this is a fine, don't buy it and upcycle it. Okay. That's a shitty thing to do because we know that plus sizes are not super abundant. We know that. So like I, I'm plus size and I buy the majority of my clothing secondhand online because the chances of going into my local charity shop and actually finding something in my size are slim to none. I will find something maybe once every six months. And I live in London where like we've got some really good charity shops, but also Charity shops aren't as good as they were 20 years ago because of fast fashion watering down the quality of everything. So I think a lot of people do believe that like Depop sellers and people reselling are ruining charity shops, but fast fashion is ruining your charity shop. Ultimately, I think everyone should be buying secondhand. The fashion industry produces 100 to 150 billion garments 
annually. That is per year. That's not within our lifetime. Meanwhile, the population on this planet is just hitting 8 billion people. So we are producing way more clothing than we can wear or buy or use, which means that someone opening a Depop shop isn't even a drop in the bucket for this problem. If, if, 5 million people open online secondhand stores, it still wouldn't adequately tackle the problem. There is no scarcity in the secondhand market. There is scarcity of a lack of quality, but there isn't scarcity. So if somebody is buying up secondhand fast fashion and reselling it, I have no problem with it. But if you were specifically buying a plus size garment that's in really good shape and then you're going to cut it up and make it a size four, maybe don't do that. That's kind of uncool. Totally. I Your point about the quality overall of secondhand shops uh, declining because of the abundance of fast fashion is so dead on. And I feel like at least, so I'm in, in New York City and basically the only area that I like to go thrift shopping and consignment shopping is on the Upper East Side because those old <laughs> have the nicest clothes. <laughs> yes. And yes. they... they like truly, like they, the the kind of stuff, and I always tell people, I'm like, please go to the neighborhoods with rich old people specifically, because they bought really good stuff. They've kept it forever. They kept it in impeccable quality. Like I frequently, I'll get like St. John jackets there for under a hundred dollars. Like, and you are just not finding that in almost any other neighborhood in New York City. That's Kings Road in London, by the way, everyone. Kings Road. If you go to like shortage you're just gonna get like ripped off although last time I was in shortage I did find a pair of Saint Laurent shoes that were really beautiful but too big for me and a charity shop now I want to go to the Upper East Side and spend a day browsing (laughs) um okay how do we turn this complex issue into an elevator pitch for our friends when fast fashion comes up in conversation? I would love to share the knowledge that I got from the book but I'm struggling at how to synthesize it into a short conversation change how you hang out with your friends. So one of the questions that we just talked about was multi-level marketing, right? That's a hangout. That's like a come to my house, have some food and then like buy some stuff you don't need, right? You have to change how you hang out with your friends. For a lot of us, we were socialized to think that like going to the mall or going shopping with your friends was one way to like hang out and spend quality time, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. My best friend and I, I think we're both sort of coming off of like the fast fashion boat together. And it's really beautiful about our friendship. I feel like when one of us goes in a direction, the other one just sort of follows with nary a conversation, but we've been friends for 15 years. So it's taken a long, it's taken a while to get to that place, but we both sort of came off the fast fashion boat together and it was just sort of like an overnight switch. We just kind of started spending a bit more money on our clothing and realizing, ooh, maybe we don't want to go to H&M or Target. Maybe we just want to like go for a hike. Maybe we want to actually go to like all the movies that we want to see instead of like buying fast fashion. And then the real one, maybe we want to volunteer together. Volunteering with your friends is such a twofer. It's just like you get that hangout in, you do something good, do something fun volunteer with your friends in a charity shop. Oh, wow. Charity shop volunteering was a crucial part of me really seeing this conversation for what it is. And if you were like, hey guys, I'm going to volunteer for this charity and uh, maybe got your friends involved in it, 
maybe you wouldn't even have to have the conversation because they'd be like, holy crap, there is a lot of clothing that is coming in these doors every minute and it's making me feel gross and I don't want to go to the mall because that was my experience. After I volunteered at a charity shop, every time I would go to the mall, I would actually feel a bit physically ill by the amount of stuff and realizing that all of it will one day be someone else's problem. And so you sort of have to change how you're hanging out with your friends. If your idea before of hanging out was going to a store and buying things you don't need, that's got to be the first thing to go. And uh, you can do it subtly without being preachy. Just be like, hey, I really want to go see this movie instead. Do you want to go do that? Eventually, they'll they'll take the hint and they'll notice that you are changing the ways in which you interact with the system too. And maybe you don't have to have a conversation about it, but you can sort of next time you get something for a really good price on eBay, um, you can sort of waggle that around and be like, oh, you like these jeans? Yeah, they were $10. Poshmark, yeah. Yeah, would you believe that? So we can make it fun without sort of making them feel like, you know, we're being superior. But then when they start to like dip their toe in, pass them the book, be like, hey, (laughs) I just thought you might want to, you might want to learn a little bit more about this. (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. It's a like, I love the idea. You're sort of like a missionary. You're like, you might be interested in this book. <laughs> this is the thing though. I do think the minute you start to really, really, really take yourself away from these systems, you do become like quite evangelical about it. I, at least I did. And I realized there were different ways to like engage people on it. And, um, you know, I've got a few, I've got a few tricks up my sleeve. I love that. So the last question from our book club is, do you see progress with fast fashion companies since publishing your book, which you did in 2021? Uh, Is this a response to regulation or our individual choices? Yeah. So I, this is, these questions are brilliant because like, these are questions that people definitely need to be asking. Individual choice plays such a key part in this, but unfortunately the greenwashing has become more abundant. Next, we got to sort of like tackle the politicians, but like the brands are definitely responding. They respond to losing money. And that's the reality when people say, oh, individual choice has nothing to do with it. It's absolute BS. Like these brands will see that you are taking your money elsewhere and they want to know where you're taking your money. There is a reason why every brand now is launching a resale platform because they see that resale is the next biggest thing and resale is becoming the next biggest thing because of people making different individual choices. And they're studying that. But I think we've got to go in a direction where we start talking about why it's important to pay fair wages and to buy clothing that you know was produced in a fair way. That needs to be the next thing. It can't just be about like, aesthetics are changing ourselves but yeah I think that brands are definitely paying attention but they're getting trickier and trickier with the greenwashing you know I've seen things like um we were chatting about this today actually on Twitter Zara has launched a repair service for their clothing okay that sounds good on the outset nobody is ever talking about decreasing the amount of clothing that they're producing which is the first thing that needs to happen but whatever. So they've launched a repair service. The problem is their clothing's price mark isn't high enough that people are really feeling like they want to repair it. 
You know, if the repair service of a hem of a dress is 30 pounds, but the dress is only 50 pounds, are people actually going to pay to to really get that garment perfect? You know, and that's something where I think fast fashion has painted itself into a corner where they've made their product so inexpensive that they can't participate in sustainable practices. You know, Primark in the UK launched a secondhand resale section in some stores and a journalist was saying why would I buy that stuff when I can buy the Primark stuff new for like a couple pounds more well nobody wants to pay fair wages if the price of the stuff that you're selling is exploitatively priced and only priced that way because you are exploiting someone so all of these brands are trying to sort of like get in on the conversation but they're not realizing that the call is coming from inside the house and they have to fix their supply chain before they can insert these sustainable solutions. Well said. Um, so thoughtful. I'm so, so glad we were able to have you on uh, the book club. Absolutely loved reading Consumed. And for those who may not know the book, know you, where should they go to find more of your work? Um, I am on Instagram. I'm Aja Barber on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm Aja says hello. I'm a bit ornery on Twitter. I don't know. Twitter is an ornery place. So, you know, take me with a grain of salt there. Um, I don't do a lot of ads because the fashion industry is crashing the planet. So if you like my work and you like this conversation, I do have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Aja Barber. But yeah, I'm, I'm around. I'm in spaces. I'm on social media. My funniest, um, my first platform was actually Pinterest and I'm Aja says hello on Pinterest and that was the first place where I actually got a following so I'm there very quietly but I I love Pinterest me too in so many ways the anti-twitter it really is it's just really good imagery and ideas and like I give myself at least 20 minutes of Pinterest time a day because I really like you know getting those ideas in so yeah, I enjoy it. But yeah, I'm around. I love that. All right. Well, thank you so much again, Aja, for joining us today. And thank you guys all for tuning in. And we will see you next Monday here on an all new episode of The Financial Confessions. Thanks, guys. Thank Bye. you all for having me. Thank, thank you. you. Take care, everyone. Bye.